Are you serious? Hey, I'm Brendan O'Meara, and this is my show. Oh yeah, it's the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. The show where I speak to the best artists about telling true stories and tease out origins, tactics, and habits so you can apply those tools of mastery to your own work. Sound good? Let's hit it. Welcome CNFers, my CNF buddies. Oh, and I'm I feeling good today. And boy, do I have a treat for you. But first, if you don't subscribe to the show, go and get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and soon Spotify. And join our little tribe in this true story corner of the internet for episode 99. I welcome David Grand, a New Yorker staff writer and the best-selling author of The Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and The Birth of the FBI, not to mention The Lost City of Z. Killers of the Flower Moon is the best, with a capital B, book I've read all year, and with good reason. We dig into his approach to writing this book, as well as key literary influences and why he ultimately landed on telling true stories. This is a fun conversation. I think you're going to dig it. Killers of the Flower Moon, a National Book Award finalist, is now available in paperback. You can find more about David Grant at his website, davidgrant.netlify.com, and follow him on Twitter, at David Grant. Without further ado, here's my conversation with the best-selling author, David Grant. commend you that you're I, I've been a fan of your work for years and sometimes I, I like to start with um, maybe not even necessarily a writing or craft question in a sense that uh, you know what what do you like to do to kind of decompress from from writing you know what are some of those other activities that interest you that get you away from you know what what it is your you know your stock and trade yeah so um, well uh, having kids is always uh, one's greatest delight and preoccupation. So um, they fulfill uh, my greatest diversion and and, and occupation, uh, and they're wonderful. And they kind of bring into my life interests that would not ordinarily have been my interest. So they're both uh, very into music, into playing, and composing, and singing. So that has kind of brought joys. And then. I have kind of various little obsessive hobbies that are my diversions. I am a sports nut and spend far too much time uh, listening to uh, NBA and various sports podcasts. Uh-huh, that's <laughs> uh, great. And uh, I, I could tell one far too much about uh, the NBA than is one, one would find healthy. I suppose some people follow the stock market. I, I was following the Tankathon, which was a um, <laughs> to see where my Knicks might end up with a pick. Of course, even my Knicks couldn't tank appropriately and uh, don't have too high a draft pick. And then I, for pleasure, you know, I read so much nonfiction uh, for work. I tend to read a lot for pleasure, but that is really fiction. Um, I read a lot of detective fiction, uh, a lot of fun mysteries. I read a lot of like Michael Conley, people like that, Pelicanos, um, and um, and and kind of that. That's kind of what my other diversion. Yeah, it's it's so important to, especially when you're a lot of the reporting you do is is it's it's intense material. So to have have those things that are a little more like candy. Uh, you know, page turners and even, you know, sports is just such a good distraction. It probably allows you to go back to the work that yes. you're known for with more energy and rigor. Yeah. And, and what I love about sports is, you know, they can argue endlessly and the stakes are so low. And so yeah. um, and, and they feel big, but they're so low. Um, you know, I, I probably follow politics too much, too, but they're when everyone's arguing, the stakes feel so high with sports. It's kind of a, a great uh, diversion because. In the end, uh, life will survive whether one team wins or loses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. And uh, so, have you been a lifelong Knicks fan? I have. It's been my curse. Uh, lifelong Mets fan. Uh, mm-hmm. That's at least had some. Uh, I've at least had a few moments of glory over that span of my life. The Knicks. I've never had a single moment of glory. 
uh, at least since I've been conscious and could kind of talk. Um, and uh, um, and I follow uh, the Giants football, which also has had some moments of glory. Though I follow football a little less than I used to. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm a, I see. I, I grew up in um, outside of Boston, so I'm like a New England everything. So the, to hear you say that you're a big Giants fan kind of kind of needles me a little bit. Yes, that is true. Well, that's true. It's I, but you know, you, you you're allowed a few moments of defeat when when which we had given your trajectory. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. So I, I still I still have like replay sort of like nightmares of David Tyree and Mario Manningham making those yes. catches. <laughs> Yep. Well, um, yeah, so, you know, with... Um... I just want to say that catch was all skill, not luck, as some people would say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, my God. Yeah, so that's uh, that's great that you've got those kind of kind of diversions. And um, and now when you were when you were younger and sort of coming up and, you know, growing up in New York City and having uh, maybe... Uh, did, did you have a particular literary bent, like you were always drawn to the written word and hope to maybe take that up as a vocation someday? So, um, you know, in a kind of a, a, a little bit of weird familial history, you know, my mom was a publisher and editor. She's actually the first woman editor-in-chief and publisher of a major publishing house um, and in the U.S. And so because of that, there were lots of authors around when I was growing up. So I met people like Judy Bloom and Dick Francis and um, other other uh, writers and um, Scott Bird and so writing was kind of and reading was always kind of part of my life. There was always kind of an attraction and a kind of a romance about these writers who I met. Um, you know, Judy Bloom's book I read when I was young, obviously, and then as I got older. But so these um, I think always had a certain attraction. I really didn't become a big reader though um, until uh, probably. I'm trying to remember, I guess it would be like middle school. I guess we'd refer to it today. I call it junior high back mm-hmm. then. And, you know, I started to discover, when I discovered the novels of Essie Hinton, you know, I, The Outsiders and and, and uh, Rumblefish, I, be, I began to read all of her novels. And they just kind of, that was when I really felt like I had that compulsion where I would pick up a book and I needed to know what would happen. And I would sneak off into the corner to read it and there'd be other things going on. And then I read um, another uh author back then, a guy named Robert Cormier, who wrote um, The Chocolate War and I Am the Cheese. And I Am the Cheese in particular kind of stuck with me and haunted me. I don't know how many of the listeners would be familiar with his work, but um, I Am the Cheese is this great little novel. Um, and it has this kind of incredible twist at the end. And um, I think that twist always stuck with me. And it, I think it kind of influenced a lot of the novels I like to read and also my own writing in which I kind of look for surprises. Of course, I'm doing nonfiction, but I think it had an impact on me in the sense that it stayed with me, um, how you can kind of be, have the ground that you're kind of on suddenly fall out from under you as a reader or the world you're kind of inhabiting. Yeah, I think that's a, a characteristic of the nonfiction you've been writing for, you know, made a made a career out of. And I what what uh, what becomes the challenge in trying to surprise a reader when you also have to adhere to to the facts? Yeah, so I think I, mean, I think a, a, a big part of it is the story you choose to to write on because obviously some stories are more linear, and I report on linear stories too. But I think most of life, though, and most stories have a degree of mystery and intrigue about them, in the sense that. When we wake up in the morning, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen next, per se. Um, events happen. Um, and often in stories where there are criminal investigation or scientific investigations, um, the people investigating are searching for the truth while they're, you know, when they begin out or set out uh, on their journeys, they don't know the outcome. And so I think the real trick is simply telling stories chronologically. Um, letting them unfold as they really happened, um, rather than using the power of hindsight, um, letting the people who are participants within the story see it through their eyes, because for them, there is mystery and intrigue. And I think it makes stories more compelling, but I, it's also truer. I mean, it's truer to the story. You're actually getting closer to reality 
rather than away from it, which is obviously my goal. I want to get as close to the truth as possible. And the truth is for individuals, whether they're living in a criminal conspiracy, whether they're trying to make a scientific discovery, whether they're searching for a giant squid, whether they're a baseball player trying to get back to the major, they don't know how their journey is going to end. And so um, you try to see it through their eyes and what they experience. And I think it makes the story richer and, of course, keeps that element of mystery or intrigue, which is inherent in the human condition. You know, what were maybe some of your early goals and visions as as a as a as a young reader and writer, as you know, the stories of Cormier and S. E. Hinton were sticking to your brain in a certain way, you know, then what what then became your ambitions uh, as as you were getting deeper into the world of reading and then maybe wanting to craft stories yourself? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, then you start to move on to kind of more uh, often uh, uh, other literature. Um, you know, a lot of the school books uh, stay with me, whether it would would have been um, Hurston or, um, you know, James Baldwin. Uh, what was interesting about these writers is, you know, I grew up in kind of a fairly boring suburb and uh, outside the city. I was born in the city, but then grew up in Connecticut. You know, these are the first kind of works that begin to open your eyes to other perspectives, um, other experiences of the world. So um, they began to draw me into worlds that were different than mine, and that would influence me in terms of the reporting I would want to do. Um, issues of social justice um, that were often inherent in various, uh, you know, when you're, when you're reading, for example, James Baldwin, I think things like that, uh, Orwell, um, these influenced me as a writer and the kind of writing I would want to do. Early in my life, I had an urge to write, but I didn't know what form that would take. And and in trying to learn to write, I kind of wrote in every form possible. So I wrote really bad poetry. I wrote essays. I tried to, you know, once I got to college, I tried to write some op-eds, which I was very bad at. Mm -hmm. I did straight reporting. Um, I wrote some creative fictions. I just wanted to write, and I didn't yet know what was the form that best suited me. Um, and so... You know, I, I'm always impressed by people who have very linear career paths or, or evolutions. Um, I am too chaotic to to mm -hmm. to have such a linear path. And so for me, it was a lot of trial and experimentation, learning more what I was good at, but all the time trying to write in any which way possible, because obviously that's how you learn to be a writer. And, um, and then I eventually kind of went to journalism. It seemed to better fit me. Um, I kind of needed the real world to kind of bolster me and things I saw. I, I'd rather kind of find the story and excavate it than make it up. Um, and so that became what interested me. But even then, within that form, it was an evolution to get to creative nonfiction. Um, I started out doing more straight journalism. And in some ways, it was ill-suited for me because I always tended to tell stories from kind of beginning to end, um, the way my grandmother used to tell me stories when I was growing up about her family and history and her uh, husband or my grandfather who had fled Russia on foot and raced motorcycles. She would kind of tell me these incredible stories about him. But they always had a beginning, middle, and end. And whenever I would write newspaper stories, I would turn them in and the editor would say, this is really good, but we're going to take your last paragraph and make it your second paragraph because the reader needs to know what's coming. Right. <laughs> Wow. That, so, yeah, that must have been, you know, talk about formative experience being like maybe like sitting at your grandmother's feet as she's telling these stories. Yeah, they, they, that, you know, as much as probably any reading, um, that probably stimulated my imagination more than anything. And what was always uh, particularly kind of arresting about the experience is my grandfather at that time, by the time I knew him, he had had a uh, a stroke. He was very old. Uh, he could barely move. I mean, he and he really didn't talk much. He just kind of sat in a chair, um, and he kind of would just kind of look out at the view, um, out, out the window, or sit on the porch and just kind of look at the trees. And um, so she would tell me these stories, and I could kind of see him almost immobile. And of course, these stories were these incredible escapades and adventures. Um, and so, kind of seeing him there, and then hearing these stories about his youth, um, somehow made those stories extremely powerful to me. Yeah, and do you think that you know, have hearing those those oral stories, those oral histories from your family, that 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 in fact like influenced your, your prose style as so so it would land well on the ear as well as the eye. Well, it certainly structurally influenced me because again, I thought of stories as kind of unfolding, and that is just kind of the way human beings tend to tell stories. I mean, we don't tell them 
from the end backward. I mean, unless you're watching a movie Memento or something, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some strange. But we tend to kind of narratively structure stories, kind of from a beginning, middle, and end. So structurally, it kind of it influenced me. And then, I think having stories be accessible has always been something that has appealed to me. While I read some more complicated and challenging fiction or um, you know academic papers. The writing that has always kind of drawn me are writers who make the word and the image um, accessible. Um, um, maybe because I'm not as smart, but um, um, that was the way my grandmother told stories. And so um, I, I'm a big believer in bringing people into stories and that as I write them, they really hopefully can be accessible to anyone. And then I'm also a big believer that within that kind of storytelling structure, I mean, whether it's just, you know, you read the Bible, it's very accessible. Um, within those structures, you can, and within that voice and, and kind of oracular tradition or oral storytelling, um, you can actually deal with really important themes and, and uh, stories of great moral importance, certainly true in Killers of the Flower Moon, for example, the, my, my newest work. So I think you can deal with a lot of things, but you can you know, hopefully reach people who might not otherwise want to read about that kind of story or learn about that subject matter. Mm. So you graduate from Connecticut College in 89, you receive a Thomas Watson Fellowship, and you go to Mexico to, to conduct research. Uh, what brought you there, and what kind of experience was that for you? Yeah, it was wonderful. So I, when I went to college, um, I was probably a little bit of a screw up in high school, and I got <laughs> to uh, college, and I kind of got more serious about studying. And I had a teacher who was a Latin Americanist, who kind of a little bit again, kind of like the we talked a little bit about kind of earlier novels or that kind of opened up other worlds. So I had this Latin American teacher who. Um, got me very excited about learning about Latin American history, Latin American culture. Obviously, there was a lot of political dynamics going on at that time in Central America when I was in college. There was a lot of conflict, U.S. intervention. Um, and so I began to kind of learn everything I could. I decided to learn Spanish in college. I learned French in, in high school, so I decided to learn Spanish. And I actually studied abroad uh, my junior year in, in Costa Rica. And then um, after college, I had this fellowship to Mexico where I lived with uh, uh, several families of different socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, looking at um, the change from one-party rule. That was when Mexico was transitioning from one-party rule, and but trying to document it as much anthropologically by living with these families, how that kind of was affecting the families. And so it was a wonderful experience, and it kind of brought me into, again, cultures and places I would never have been otherwise. And it also began my first real reporting experience. There was a English... Uh, language magazine published by La Jornada it doesn't exist. I think La Jornada still exists, big newspaper, but the English magazine that they published doesn't exist anymore. And I lived in Puebla, which was about two hours, I think it was about southeast or something like that, my geography, southwest, uh, in any case, outside of the <laughs> city. And um, uh, I would, um, you know, I had didn't have experience, so I would do stories on spec, meaning, you know, I would deliver these little stories reporting on once a month on some cultural political event in the area of Mexico where I lived. I would ride a bus. There was no internet back then and there was no computers. I, I had a little typewriter, so I would type it up in a typewriter and then I would get on a bus and ride it in and then deliver it by hand uh, to the editors and they would look at it. If they liked it, they would accept it and they would give me just enough money for my bus ride back home and also to go see a movie that night, which always made me very happy. <laughs> like to see a movie if I if I got accepted and then ride the bus back. And those were my first real journalism clips. Wow. <laughs> and I've read that a, a lot of times when you're looking to vet out a story, you know, you're often looking for almost like these two sentence news briefs and, you know, that a sound kind of goes off in your mind like, oh, there's you know, there might only be 50 words in this little brief, but it probably could balloon to 10, 20, and 100 times that long. So how, how do, you, do you, what kind of sound does your brain make when you read those kind of things? And, you know, how does your taste vet those little briefs out and say, oh, there's probably more here? Yeah, so, I mean, usually it, it, there is a kind of a, a question that just kind of goes off, and then that leads to kind of another question that you want to answer. And I'll just give a very concrete example I um, 
was reading a news brief in a California paper that was probably just an inch news brief, meaning it was just a paragraph, uh, and it said that uh, the federal prosecutors had swept into several prisons and arrested prisoners while they were in prison uh, for being members of the Aryan Brotherhood and committing various criminal enterprises, uh, murder, drugs, uh, um, and other associated uh, crimes. And it just was kind of one paragraph. I just said, and I thought to myself, wait a second, arrested in prison? That's so bizarre. Like, you're already in prison, so you're arrested in prison? Like, and then I thought, and then that led to a second question, which is, okay, you know prison gangs exist. We all know that. But, like, have we ever, how, how do they actually operate? Like, if you're, if some of these people were in solitary and in supermaxes. And so I said, how do, how do you, like, if you're in solitary, even run a prison gang? Like, how do you communicate? Um, how do you take over a prison with guards and and, um, and other prisoners? Um, how do you even, like, what's the money exchange? And so I just thought, I don't think I've read that story. And so I thought, well, that would be really interesting to look at the forensics of a prison gang. Now, then that leads to, you know, other challenges of how you actually would be able to tell that story, which is part of the reason it had been told. It's not so easy to get inside a prison gang and get the information and meet prisoners who are members to tell. But yeah. but that's what began that story, and it grew out of uh, it grew out of just a brief. That's amazing. Like, so how did that? So how do you then sell that story up the the chain to say, okay, yeah, David, like, yes, go go crazy on this one. Yeah. So I mean, I think. Um, Especially at the New Yorker, I I have great editors. I have an editor named Daniel Zaleski, who's I think one of the greatest editors in America. Um, he's kind of this secret he edits so many great writers, and um, and we have very similar instincts and ways of wanting to tell stories. Um, and David Remnick, um, who's the editor of the New Yorker, you know, has just been. Terrific at kind of, you know, when you get to a place, it takes a little while to kind of sort out what are the stories you want to do, what is the magazine looking for. But they have given me great space to kind of pursue my passions. Uh, they've kind of, you know, like, being an editor of a magazine is like, you're, it's like kind of like being psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to kind of figure out what makes each writer tick. And because each writer ticks differently, um, reporters tick differently, what they want to do what kind of pushes they need to get stories done. Some writers like to be assigned stuff, some don't. But with me, they, I think they kind of figured out that I kind of do these somewhat more unusual offbeaten stories. And if I'm really obsessed with them, I tend to do a better job. And so um, I, when I presented this story, they shared the questions. And the only times they've really rejected stories is when they've been right. Um, you know, they'll, they'll raise something, and I'll be like, yeah, you're right. That's not so good. Um, <laughs> yeah, they'll bring up some flaw in it or say, oh, well, wait, that was just done everywhere. There's, you know, um, every once in a while, I'll pitch some crime story that's too gothic, and David says, save that for your gothic tales. Uh, <laughs> um, but, for the, but, but for the most part, um, you know, they just – it's kind of been a wonderful um, – partnership I, I would call it I mean we really are partners and so um, so I would pitch the story that way now of course the it would hinge on whether I could tell the story um, you know how would I be able to uh, tell a story like that and that began a, a journey of um, you know getting prosecutors to help me looking for old court records but then ultimately trying to find a member of the prison gang who would talk to me and so I found out there was a defector um, from the Aaron brother who had once been one of the top leaders and he had defected after the gang had decided to um, kill a, a, the family of a snitch mm-hmm. outside the prison. And he thought that had gone, went too far. He thought that was, um, and so he had defected from the gang and he had probably more death threats upon him than anybody in the prison system. And I discovered there was uh, almost a witness protection for, for certain prisoners. And he was in that where he was like a ghost prisoner. Um, he wasn't listed on, uh, official prison records. It wasn't disclosed publicly, and he was kept off in isolation. Um, and I had somebody who let me know. It took me for ages to try to find where he was. Somebody in law enforcement eventually helped me, um, and I c- contacted the prison to say I wanted to come speak with them, and they denied that he was there. And then about an hour later, I got a call from the law enforcement 
person who was helping me, and they said they think you're a sleeper agent coming in to kill him, and they're moving him from the prison. Um, wow. And, and so this person explained to the prison that I was a legitimate reporter and a writer with The New Yorker, and the prison understood that, and I was able to send a letter to this prisoner, um, uh, Michael Thompson, and um, he agreed to meet me, and he met me in a in prison. I had to change my clothes. I was led into a special room. He was in a cannibal lector-like cage, all glassed and walled off. Um, it wasn't like where you normally meet prisoners and you could sit across from them. He was in kind of a, a, a bulletproof, weaponproof, I guess it's plexiglass. I don't know what they make those things of. Yeah. Uh, uh, a box and began to interview over over a few days and um, that allowed me entryway to tell the story. Wow. And as a, a from a craft perspective, what do you feel like you you struggle with that you have to wrestle with, you know, every time you're either with the in your reporting phase or your writing phase? Like what do you what do you you know struggle with? Yeah, well, I think every story is a struggle, to be honest. I mean, I don't, you know, very rarely do I think they are easy. I know there are writers who, uh, David Rednick, who I mentioned, it, you know, he seems to, you know, it, it seems easier to him. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's very prolific. I don't know. He edits a magazine, writes his beautifully, perfectly structured pieces. He seems to disappear into his office and come out an hour later with 10,000, you know, immaculate words. And for me, it's it's certainly... Uh, more of a struggle um, and a puzzle, I should say. And some of that struggle is not always the right word because part of the attraction is the the challenge and the puzzle. I, I don't like to tell the same story twice. Um, I'm a generalist, and I'm always looking for a story that will push me in some ways, either subject-wise, to learn about something new, structurally, uh, reporting-wise. And so they always make you nervous or struggle, but it also what makes it intriguing. Um, I think a lot about structure in stories, um, how to tell them going back to what we're talking about, tell stories that will bring readers in um, and hold them. Um, the stories I always love to read were the stories that held you in their grip and um, you know, to try to tell stories in such a way that they will hopefully hold the story in such a grip. And I think the hardest thing for me is, is writing, uh, is just on a sentence, a sentence level. Um, structures are like a puzzle. I can usually figure them out. Um, writing sentences doesn't come naturally to me, and I always want to be a better writer. Uh, so I struggle with that. I struggle with getting the language, um, the clarity, the essence, um, to hopefully have images that uh, evoke them. Um, and so writing is, 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 is always a challenge, finding the right voice for a story, and, and and just making sure that, you know, on a sentence-to-sentence -sentence level, you've said what you want to say and said it as best as you can say it. And I, and, and I always, you know, I always feel that, oh, I could have said it better. <laughs> or someone, you know, there's, you know, like, you know, if, if I if I had a Philip Roth gene, the writing would have been better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so many people have that have that struggle and they, you know, and they or whether it's a, a fear or a struggle, they just have a sometimes it's it's just hard for them to get the words out because maybe it's like that Ira Glassian gap between what they are capable of making and what they want to make. And yeah, I wonder how like since you since you struggle with the the writing and you're dancing with that self doubt, how do you process and work in the face of that? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, there are no shortcuts. The you just have to just kind of plow through it, which means. You know, I spend hours and hours sometimes at a computer, and some days it goes well, and some days it doesn't. You know, I have little kind of modest tricks of, you know, I think sometimes just going for a walk can help you. And the trick is there are kind of two parts of your brain that you need for writing, but they get in the way of each other. So one part is getting the words on the page and kind of writing more freely, and the other is the kind of uh, the um, editor 
who's looking at each sentence going, oh, why'd you put that adverb there? Mm -hmm. You don't need that adjective. Or, oh, wait, is that even grammatically correct? Wait, I don't think the comma goes there. (laughs) (laughs) And and so those two things, and so you kind of want to separate those processes as much. And so sometimes if you're getting too hung up or, you know, going for a walk or exercising, um, I find sometimes just clarifies the brain. You kind of want to be relaxed when you're writing and not be too self-conscious. And then obviously when you're editing um, and rewriting and revising, you want to be more conscious. Yeah, those are some great points. And I wonder if, do you have any routines or systems in place so that you can maybe access the generative part of your brain a bit easier in the event and make things easier for yourself? Well, I'll often, um, you know, will just sometimes read a page from a writer I love. Um, so if I'm, you know, sitting at the computer or before I sit down, often I look for certain writers who, you know, it, 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 who just might offer a little bit of inspiration or fit the kind of style that I'm trying to write in for that piece, uh, you know, for Killers of the Flower Moon, which is kind of a Western setting. You know, I read a lot of Western writers, but I may just read like a page um, or a few paragraphs of somebody um, and that's something that just kind of gets me into that kind of uh, freer state almost um, and and it kind of um, uh, uh, gets gets me going. Um, but again, I think the the most important thing is this, this is that is actually accepting that you can't fully control it and there are good days and bad days and you just have to kind of work through them both. Mm. Yeah, and I, I, I've heard you uh, say it before in other interviews, but I think it would be uh, wonderful to hear you um, say it again about how you came to the, the Osage murders and that, that, that spark that sent you to the museum in Oklahoma. And then, uh, you know, and from there, how you knew at that moment that you had, you had a compelling story on your hand. I often cold call people as a, you know, as a reporter trying to, look for interesting stories. If I read in the newspaper, you know, a little bit like looking at the briefs, if I come across a name or somebody who seems really smart in a field, um, I will sometimes just cold call them up just to have a conversation. Sometimes they're like, what are you doing? And just like, I'm busy, leave me alone. Mm-hmm. And then, other ones in a while, they're kind of chatty and you have wonderful conversations. And, you know, I would say 98% of the time, 99% of the time, you know, it doesn't really lead you anywhere. Um, it's kind of like when you read the newspaper looking for stories, most days you don't find something that will necessarily set you underway, but, um, you're looking for that 1%. And, um, I had learned that there was a historian at the FBI internally, a guy named John Fox. And, um, I also learned that there was a, a historian in the CIA internally. The problem with that historian is they don't let you speak to him. Um, but I called the, uh, I called the uh, FBI historian. I just said, my name is, you know, David Grant and I, write stories and work at the New Yorker and um, and just was hoping to talk about the FBI history and just this kind of interest interested if there were cases that the Bureau had worked on. And we, we talked primarily about COLINTELPRO, which was the FBI's illegal surveillance of of uh, leftist groups in, in the United States during the 70s. And um, but at one point he had mentioned just almost in passing this the OCH that in the 1920s the, the one of the Bureau's first cases was looking into uh, a kind of a series of murders of the Osage Indians. And um, after I got on the phone with him, I mostly looked into Colintel Perel because <laughs> that was the bulk of our conversation. But then I kind of thought, well, there seems to have been a lot written about it. And I kind of went back and looked at my notes and I said, oh, wait, what's this Osage case? And I started to try to kind of look into it, but I couldn't really find anything. So I decided to make a trip out to the Osage Nation. And at that point, I wasn't planning on, I didn't even know if I'd write a story. I just thought it, it was in intriguing enough just to know that um that there was this case where um in the 19 in the early 20th century the osage indians had become the wealthiest people per capita in the world because of oil and that they had been then serially murdered and so i made this trip out to uh, the osage nation and i visited the museum there and when i was at that museum i saw this large panoramic photograph on the wall uh, that was taken in 1924 and it showed members of the Osage Nation along with white settlers. And when you looked at it, I mean, it's a beautiful, enormous photograph. I didn't even know they had panoramic cameras back then, but it's a panoramic shot. And um, and uh, it looked, you know, it looks very innocent. But 
I noticed that a portion of the photograph was missing, and I asked the museum director who I was meeting for the first time. She would later become a friend. I said, you know, what had happened to that part of the photograph? And she said that it contained a figure so frightening she decided to remove it. And she then pointed to the missing panel, and she said the devil was standing right there. And she then went into the basement and pulled up an image of the missing panel, which showed one of the killers uh, of the Osage. And, you know, I was very struck in that moment that the Osage had removed that picture, not to forget what had happened, but because they can't forget. And yet here were people like me who had no knowledge of this history or had never been taught it, who had completely forgotten it. Uh, we had erased it from our conscious. And for me, that really was the galvanizing moment where I said, I really need to tell this story if I can. And the project grew out of trying to understand who that figure was. And of course, it led me to what I would come to realize was one of the most sinister crimes in American history. Yeah, the as sinister as they, I, when I was just sort of thinking, well, after I had finished the book and I was just thinking back over it about the the conspirators and, and the and the devil in this case, and he, you almost wanted like, you couldn't be there for, but you had to know that at some point they were having some meetings in some remote places and they were orchestrating this thing and it just made it all the more evil just to think of the the machinations behind this conspiracy uh, uh, behind the behind this act it was just almost sickening to think of it yeah well and they and they were and and one of the things that made them so sinister was that these were deeply intimate crimes these were inheritance schemes and so the way the killers would try to steal the osage's oil money because the Osage were getting rich because of these massive oil deposits under the land, and each Osage had what was called a headright, which was essentially a share in this mineral trust. And a headright could not be bought or sold; it could only be inherited. And so, to, to swindle these headrights um, involved these deeply intimate crimes in which the conspirators, the white conspirators, would pretend to love you and often even have children with you, while systematically plotting to murder you over years. I mean, there was such an intimate betrayal and deception, and it's one of the things that made these crimes so deeply sinister. Yeah, the, their their patience and their capacity to be comfortable with the with the evil they were committing is just all the more chilling as as you read it. You know, ultimately, some their I mean, the the head the the head. Uh, the leader behind it, he was. You would say he maybe he was like the true psychopath, but the but there were some others that might that had a little bit of conscience that kind of broke the case eventually. But it's just like all the more chilling to realize how long it played out. And like you said, these crimes of intimacy really is just real sickening that this even took place less than a hundred years ago. Yeah, less than a hundred years ago, and there was and and there really was, um, you know, when I began this story, I kind of investigated it as kind of a, a traditional crime story, thinking it was a story about who did it, and this kind of one figure who was in that photograph who was obviously extraordinarily evil and I think probably by our psychological definitions uh, would probably be a psychopath or sociopath. Um, but it really, as I did more research and made more discoveries, and you don't really know where stories will lead you when you begin them, and you have to be prepared to go where the evidence takes you. And so I gathered evidence that really demolished my original conception of the book. And by the end, it became a book not about who did it, but who didn't do it. And it was really about a culture of killing. And there were so many people who participated in these crimes. And some of them, the thing that made it so disturbing is that rather than there being a singular evil figure, uh, evil lurked in the hearts of so many seemingly ordinary people. Yeah. Oh, and and talk about the the logbook that you came across in your research, which, to to use to use your terms, just really spoke to the banality of evil. Yeah. So um, I went to an archive in uh, a branch of the National Archives in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, a lot of the federal records um, uh, from that area of Oklahoma and Indian Territory end up in these archives. And it's it's kind of a, a massive warehouse. It, looks like something out of Raiders of the Lost Ark where they store the covenant at the end. Mm -hmm. And I was pulling records on something called uh, the guardianship. And for the listeners who aren't familiar, there was such prejudice at the time that 
the U.S. government went so far as to pass legislation requiring many Osage, uh, wealthy Osage, to have white guardians to manage their fortunes. Yeah. Here you could be this great Osage chief, and you could have a white guardian telling you whether you could buy that car or this toothpaste. Um, and the system wasn't abstractly racist. It was literally racist. It was based on the quantum of Osage blood. So if you were a full-blooded Osage, you were deemed, quote-unquote, incompetent and given one of these guardians. And, of course, it also uh, created one of the largest state and federally sanctioned criminal enterprises, as many guardians swindled tens of millions of dollars uh, from the Osage. And so when I was at that archives, I was doing some research on the guardianship system, and I had wanted to check whether a certain Osage had had a certain guardian. So I had pulled a box of guardian records, and inside I had found uh, a ledger, uh, or it looked like a ledger, uh, almost, a, or a logbook. I had a fabric cover, and it covered just a few years uh, in the early 20th century. And all it was was a list of the name of the guardian with what they referred to as the Osage ward whose fortune they oversaw. So it would have been an Osage. And the only other thing in the book was if, if an Osage ward had died, and I put ward in quotes because that's the term they used, um, somebody had written, some anonymous bureaucrat had just written the word dead next to that name. And so when I opened the book and I looked at the name of a guardian, I saw that they had had five Osage whose fortune they had overseen. And next to the first name, it said the word dead. The next to the next name, it said dead. And the next name, it said dead. And the next name, all five had the word dead scribbled next to it. That's a 100% mortality rate in just a few years. And I was like, that's crazy. That doesn't make sense. I mean, those teach you money. Well, so I began to look at other names of guardians. And I noticed one had, my memory serves me correctly, about 12 Osage's fortune uh, they had uh, managed, and there was a 50% mortality rate, 50%. And again, it defied any natural death rate, and on and on it went. And I began to realize, looking at that book, that I was looking at the hints of a systematic murder campaign. And it really demolished my notion that this was about a singular evil figure. Instead, there were all these other deaths. Now, some of them may have been my natural causes. It didn't specify. But I looked into several of the deaths, and you could find clues and hints of murder. And you realize that this book got at the banality of evil. I mean, it was this very kind of antiseptic, almost forensic book. I kept thinking about the bureaucrat or bureaucrats who, used, who would simply write in the book the word dead, 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 obviously knowing that um, none of this is right. And you had to be holding that book and, and realize, you know, it took me a moment to realize what I was looking at. But again, it really drove home that, that the breadth of this conspiracy and that this really was about a culture of killing and that there were so many people who were complicit. There were, you know, doctors who administered poisons. There were morticians who covered up bullet wounds. There were uh, sheriffs and lawmen on the take or who were guardians. Um, there were many others who were complicit in their silence. Yeah, that that's what makes it just the more you the more you think about it, the more chilling it is because you don't hit the reader over the head with with that. You're just led to you're just left thinking about it. Like you close a chapter and you and you really just ruminate on it for a second, and you're like, whoa, this is some just twisted evil stuff that happened. You almost want to say it happened hundreds of years ago and we've advanced from it. But my God, this, like we were saying earlier, this happened less than 100 years ago. And it's just such a recent history that's just incredibly embarrassing and all the more, all the more sad that it was just, it was marginalized to this point. Yeah, I think I keep, I always think about one of the killers um, who was caught, one of the few who was caught. And in testimony, I, I don't remember the quote exactly now, but he said something to the effect that, you know, we didn't look at, and this was, it would have been about 1926, he said this, you know, we didn't look at killing an Indian, that's the term he used, we didn't look at killing an Indian any different today than we did back in the 1700s. Mm. Yeah, you you, would, you had said one, at one point that, uh, that uncover, uncovering reporting and telling the story was an attempt at, uh, to fill in your own ignorance. And... I, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I wonder, like, did this book become uh, weighted with a, a sense of duty at some at some point? Well, I mean, it, it, you know, you tell different stories, and they all 
hold you in certain ways. But there are obviously some stories you do that have greater moral importance. Um, and this certainly was one of them for me. And when I began reporting the story, photographs became very important to me in telling the story in a way that they had not been in my previous work because I really saw this as a work of documentation, of kind of chasing ghosts and trying to document every which way I could this missing history or this this largely erased history from our conscious. So I gathered, began to gather photographs of, of the victims. And, and originally, I just had a couple or a few photographs. And over time, the number of those photographs kept growing until they lined a wall of my office. Mm. Um, and they were, they were a constant reminder about what this project was about to me. I mean, they always kind of just reminded me. They were, they, they were, they, they centered me about what the project was about. Yeah, and the way the the photographs are threaded throughout the whole book, it almost the book in itself kind of unfolds like a documentary film in a way. Did you get that sense as you were packaging it? Yeah, that I, I really wanted to integrate the photographs in a way. So you, also the story is so sometimes hard to believe. Mm. I mean, so I mean, you know, it, it's it's some of the elements are almost unfathomable. So seeing the photographs of these people. Um, and what was kind of remarkable is I was able to find not just photographs of the people, but often photographs of the event. So there was a bombing that killed uh, an Osage woman and her husband and an 18-year-old servant who lived in the house. And I was able to find photographs of the house before and after the bombing. Mm. Um, and so, again, getting at this work of kind of documentation. But, yeah, I saw photographs as being as integral, these images as kind of telling the story along with the text. And this is kind of a two-part overwhelm question. Um, um, how did you keep all the information from all these thousands of documents straight, and um, and also like not fold under the pressure of the the magnitude of the story as well as if that makes any sense? Yeah. So I mean, in terms of keeping it straight, I mean, it was definitely a challenge because. Um, I've done other projects that involved a lot of research, but the research tend to co be a little bit more um, con contained in the sense that, uh, you know, my first book, The Lost City of Z, about this British explorer who disappeared in the Amazon with his son, it was like, you got his letters, you got his diaries, you look for letters from the participants. Um, it, the, the, the information was kind of more contained in documents. They didn't fill uh, a whole room. And... With Killers of the Flower Moon, the information was scattered in so many different places, and you kind of had to get them um, and, and then kind of somehow bring some coherence to all that material. So I had in my office tens of thousands, I mean, probably hundreds of thousands, I didn't, I didn't count, thank God, uh, of documents. And, and I had a pretty small office at the time, and they basically just went almost to the ceiling, and you could barely get to my desk. Um, but what I would do is I would um, read the documents as they came in, um, and then um, I'm not great with filing systems and stuff like that, but I would try to create organized systems on the computer for that information and so that the information was more accessible. So I would read documents, highlight them, and then I would type them into the computer, the interesting relevant parts, um, and I would create kind of almost a central database of information and then I could go into that central database and then break that out into smaller, more discrete outlines of information. So if I was wanted to learn about or write about the biography of somebody, I would put all the information, biographical information from all those documents into a separate outline. Um, if I was writing uh, a scene of one of the crimes uh, and how it transpired, I would again go through that other data and then take the data out and make a more discreet organizational outline. And then that's what I would work off when I was doing the writing. And it kept me from having to kind of be writing a paragraph and then be like, oh, wait a second, where was that piece of information? And looking at my office going, oh God, I'll never find that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, then of course, you know, once, you know, you realize the the weight of, of that story too. Uh, and you, you said earlier how sometimes the writing part is, is a struggle and, and hard. Was it 
was it all the more challenging because this is a real this is such an important story that hadn't been told and had been marginalized did that add extra pressure to the actual writing of it i think i don't know if that was the case i think the the hardest part was wanting to get the Osage perspective into the story, mm -hmm. which was neglected in so many of the official accounts. So finding the records and the people and the families and the descendants and the oral histories to help me get that perspective in and trying to almost breathe life into these documents, like trying to draw emotion out of them, uh, out of these reports of the crime scene so that it wasn't just a litany of the dead, that you cared about these people. I think it was less the magnitude than just wanting myself and the reader to get to know these people and to care about them um, and yet stay completely true to the underlying records. And and so for me, that was the biggest challenge because I wasn't a witness to these events. And, you know, it's a lot easier when you witness something just to write it up. And when you don't, you have to kind of rely on all these other accounts and, and try to piece together and verify them. But more than anything was to try to give the emotion and what it was really like for these people. I read a lot about this kind of remarkable woman, Molly Burkhart, an Osage woman who was born in a lodge in the 1880s and practicing Osage traditions and then was forcibly uprooted from her home at the age of seven to go to a missionary boarding school where she had to learn English. And then within a few decades, she is, um, you know, living in a mansion and married to a white settler. And so you, you want to try to understand um, her perspective. And so sometimes I would do things to do that that really didn't make it into the story, but they just helped me emotionally connect with the people I was writing about. So, for example, one of the things that struck me was this, this part that Molly, like so many Native Americans, was just forcibly uprooted from her home at just a very young age and sent to these kind of cold boarding schools where, you know, they, you know, seem like a different universe, a different culture, a different language. Um, and so I found that she had to take, get into a, a wagon to get there. And it took two days uh, to get there. So she had to camp one night on the prairie. And so I found the old route that she would have taken. The Osage told me how she, the route was um, across the prairie. And so one night I drove out along that route. The route eventually disappeared in the prairie and I couldn't go any further, but I drove out and I camped that evening uh, on the prairie, mm. uh, just knowing that is what she did. And none of that made it into the story in the sense of my camping in the prairie, but it was just, again, a way to kind of try to just get closer to these people I was writing about. Yeah. And that em emotional connection is all the more important. And I think um, responsible on your part in that third third part of the book where you where you track down the descendants and by doing that you know the first two parts it almost feels like that's ossified a part of history and probably could have stood alone on its own and it, and it's kind of a who done it who didn't do it thing that you were referring to but by adding that third part with you as the main narrator with the with the descendants it showed that this thing that happened decades ago still has reverberated and is still very emotionally raw to people two and three generations later. Yeah, I, I, for me, and that was probably the most powerful part of the research was uh, tracking down. I checked on both descendants of the murder victims and descendants of the killers. Many of them still live in the same neighborhoods side by side. Their fates are intertwined. In many ways, that's part of the story of America. And one of the people I tracked down was um, Molly Burkhart's, um, this woman whose family was targeted um, and lost so many relatives who were murdered during the Osage Reign of Terror. I tracked down Molly's granddaughter, and you know she took me out to the graveyard where so many of her ancestors who were killed were buried, and she really drove home to me and gave me a sense about how this is still living history and how it still reverberates today and how we're not talking that long ago and how much it just traumatized these families to this day. Did this, did this project kind of, um, I don't know, tune your antenna to the fact that, you know, if this story was so marginalized that what other stories out there in our country are equally marginalized and have yet to be told in, in, a, in a similar way that you've done with this one? 
Well, you certainly realize that, and when you kind of go around, you know, and I, you realize that there are other stories like this. Many Native Americans in this country have their own kind of versions of the Osage Reign of Terror. Obviously, the particulars are different. They may not have been rich from oil money, but their own trails of tears, their own sagas that were largely neglected from many uh, of the people writing histories. Um, and I think that's true also of many other stories and it, why it's, it's important to, to find them and tell them that I'll say the challenge is often finding them because they have been kind of erased from so many records. And so you need to hopefully find the circumstances or the people who can clue you into them and then set you on their way. But I have no doubt that there are so many stories like this or important stories that need to be told. And at, at what point did the the story of the rise of the FBI enter enter the story? So, you know, when you begin a story, you, you know, at least I can't speak for everyone, but I, when I begin a story, you know, I don't often know what they're really fully about yet. I mean, you, 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 you know, obviously you, you get the broad outlines and, and that's why you begin to look into it. So, um, and it's only as you get more into it, you, you try to find the themes and the, and start to trace as you're kind of gathering information, you're kind of tracing themes and, you know, you begin to realize that the case track with the, the modernization of law enforcement in the country, the professionalization of law enforcement, the attempts by J. Edgar Hoover to kind of make this bureau, but also use this case to kind of self mythologize himself uh, and cement his, his reputation. And so you begin to realize that that is a theme running through and, you know, it's part of the story. And so you want to weave that through and, and then, you know, and then you just keep digging deeper and, you know, it can sound kind of too, too grand when you say it, but, you know, you start, at least for me, when I was researching the story, you know, I really saw it, the case really be, is both about a microcosm of the original sin from which the country was born this, conflict of white settlers with natives and all playing out in the 20th century and in many ways the case also tracks not only with the birth of modern law enforcement but also the birth of a modern country um the two of the main people i write about is molly burkhart the Osage woman and one of the investigators uh who worked for the bureau and both of them in many ways straddled two centuries or two civilizations in the case of molly where they were kind of you know, born in the countryside, Molly in a in a lodge, um, and and by the 1920s she's living in a mansion. She has white servants. She's married to a white settler, um, and Tom White, this this FBI agent, you know, he was born in a in a log cabin on the Texas frontier, practicing law enforcement when he grew up at a time when justice was meted out by the barrel of a smoking gun. By the time he's working on the Osage cases, he's wearing a suit. Um, he is learning to adopt modern techniques like fingerprinting and handwriting analysis, which was important to the case. Uh, and he has to file paperwork, which he can't stand as he's part of this kind of larger bureaucratic organization. Yeah, and I, I love, too, how as you were you know, doing your research and, and, and trying to figure out how to tell the story, that it wasn't until you had read Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom, that you know, the, everything kind of clicked into place for you. And um, I, I love how you were just like at a certain part deep in the process that you were clearly like open to suggestion, however that suggestion was going to reach you. And um, like, using that as an example, like, uh, do you sometimes uh, like cherry pick, like, oh, I'm going to, yeah, I've read this novel. That's a kind of a cool structure. Maybe I'll have a story one day that'll, that'll fit that? Or is it something that rises more organically through the material? I think, well, I think there is a happenstance quality. So certainly like I'll read certain writers for, I was, for this book, I writing, you know, kind of on a Western landscape. I read a lot of Westerns. I read Willa Cather. I wanted a certain simplicity. So I would sometimes read these writers for inspiration, but the kind of influence and structure or kind of, is I think a more is involves more serendipity. I don't think it can be, um, you know, always plotted out, which is why I think you just kind of need to be to read a lot and be open. And so, for the example that someone, I had someone I was researching Killers of the Flower Moon, I was really struggling uh, structurally how to tell the story because 
the crime spanned so many years and there were so many individuals. I had gotten this kind of cardboard board where I had drawn this kind of homeland-like outline. Mm -hmm. And it looked like a mad board. I mean, there was just arrows going every which way. There were so many different investigators. Um, nobody, there was not really one individual who kind of was could tell you the whole way through the story. Like when my first book, Lost City of Z, I mean, the, there's one main protagonist. This, there were different people showing up at different periods. Um, and I was just overwhelmed and I couldn't figure out how to make it an intimate story. In other words, how to, you know, not just make it kind of a, a kind of a broad cataloging of events. I want it rather than, you know, getting closer to the individuals who experienced it. And I was reading Absalom Absalom, which was just totally by happenstance. I read this story in the New York Times magazine about that novel and I was one of the greatest works of American literature. And I said, oh, I never read that. Well, that's kind of embarrassing. Maybe I'll give it a read. It's not the easiest novel to read, I, I must confess. And I had to read it twice to kind of fully get it. And But it's quite mesmerizing. And its use of language is, is, is kind of mesmerizing. But um, I was reading it, and it had three narrators. And it was kind of told in this oracular tradition. Um, and there was kind of an elliptical quality to that. And I thought, wait a second, three narrators, three narrators. Or have a slightly different perspective. And I thought, well, I can tell the story from the perspective of Molly Burkhart, who is in the center of this conspiracy. I need to anchor the story with her. Now, there's not enough historical records for me to tell the whole story from her point of view, but there's enough for me to be able to tell one portion of it from her perspective or largely from her perspective. And I can pick one investigator rather than like 28 of them. <laughs> and Tom White was such an interesting individual um, and I thought, well, okay, I can tell it from his perspective. And then the, the 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 other element was, well, how do I bring into the present all these new cases that I'm slowly uncovering that are kind of demolishing the original narrative? The people I'm writing about aren't aware of that, uh, of these latter discoveries. And so I thought, well, I'll have to tell part of it in the present, and I can tell that from my perspective. And I'm really just a cipher to get that information in, but I'll also let you see these Osage, see what happened to the Osage today, meet these descendants. And so that structure, it was really when I thought of that structure and I said, okay, I can tell this now. I can tell this. Because of the grim nature and the the evil nature of of the story, was this hard on you mentally to have to be so deeply immersed in this and were there ways that you came out of it so you didn't didn't get pulled down into the darkness? Well, I, I you know, I I don't think I was. A, it's a good question, and I'm always careful about exaggerating. Or I think writers we tend to kind of mythologize ourselves a little bit, and you know, either our suffering or whatnot. And I always try to be a little bit careful about that. Because for me, the thing I really care about is the story. And obviously, the people who really suffered are these families and the descendants. And um, But there was a certain weight. And I will just say that when I finished and was able to pack up some of the documents in the boxes, there was a, a certain element uh, of relief that... Um, you know, it, you know, mostly also just because it took so long and I didn't know if I would ever kind of make my way out of, of kind of being able to tell the story and get to the end. And so there was there was relief in that. But I would also say, you know, the book has a lot of evil, um, but I was also struck by a lot of goodness. Mm. Um, and um, it's probably a story about as close to good and evil as anything I've written about or probably will ever write about again, where you had almost a purity of evil. Uh, we talked a little bit about that, one of those killers, the so-called devil. Um, I don't think I've ever really encountered evil quite like that. And um, But you also had a lot of goodness in people like Molly Burkhart and Tom White, and I got to spend time with them. And I got to spend time with the descendants who were such lovely people. Um, and so I think that also uh, made it easier um, uh, uh, telling the story. And um, nothing has made me happier than going back to Osage territory since the book came out, presenting the book to the Osage, um, presenting it to so many of the descendants who helped me. I couldn't have told the story without them, sharing it with them. Um, and um, and that has been about as rewarding as any experience I've ever had and I think I ever will have. 
Well, wonderful. Well, David, the the book's a masterpiece. Like I said, it's the best book I've read all year. It's it's such a wonderful piece of um, journalism and writing and storytelling. So I just want to thank you for the work you do, and uh, thank you for carving out an hour of your morning here to talk shop. This is really, uh, really a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. All right, David. Take care. All right. Thank you. You got it. Ciao. How great was that? Big thanks, as always, to you, the listener, and to David for taking an hour out of his morning to talk shop. Hey, you want to help the show? I know you do. Share this episode with a friend and think about giving a review on iTunes. You can also share it on your social platforms. You dig? If you leave an honest review, send me a screenshot of it, and I'll coach up a piece of your work of up to 2,000 words. Not about the end give you get. Head over to brendanomera.com for show notes and to subscribe to my monthly reading list newsletter. I give out my reading recommendations and what you might have missed from the world of the podcast on the first of the month. Once a month, no spam. Can't beat it. Is that it? I think it is. Thanks for listening, CNFers. I'm out.